hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, bless his name, saints, bless his name. Psalms 100, 100 says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Oh, come on, people of God, and bless his holy name. Give him glory, give him honor, and give him praise because he's worthy of the glory, he's worthy of the honor, and he's worthy of the praise. Welcome, Shiloh family and friends. I greet you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. And greetings on behalf of our Bishop, the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Keith Watts, and our leading lady, Lady Cynthia Watts. We welcome you on this Good Friday service. Put your hands together and give our Lord and Savior a praise. We are so excited that you join in with us on this Good Friday. We have a dynamic worship service for you. We have seven dynamic ministers of the house that is going to deliver the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross. We are delighted to have them and we praise God for the seven last words that Jesus uttered from the cross. From the sixth to the ninth hour, he hung on the cross for your sins and for mine. And that is enough to praise him. That is enough to glorify him and to honor him. But before we go further into the worship, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bless you and we thank you. We glorify you and magnify you for who you are. We thank you for what you have dying for us on the cross. Father, we recognize your dying allowed us to live, that you loved us enough to hang on the cross for our sins. And for that, we are so grateful. We recognize the weight of Calvary was just for us. And we thank you on this hour. We ask that you would bless your seven servants, God. Even as they bring forth the word, we thank you, Lord God, for the words that you uttered and as they speak them and preach them and declare them, allow it to draw us closer to you and your unconditional love. And we thank you. And we honor you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost, we do pray. Amen. Oh, come on, people of God, and give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. How you know it was the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this good Friday, for your blood that you shed on Calvary. Come on, put your hands together at home. Those of you in the sanctuary, we're going to bless the Lord on this morning. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood for me. It's my slave is love. 
And the title of my sermon today is Divine Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the hardest task for a human to ever accomplish in life, but it can be done. In our lives, we all have experienced painful and disappointing circumstances when we needed to, when we needed forgiveness, or when we needed to forgive others. How do we forgive that feeling of betrayal when someone you thought you could trust turned their back on you? How do we forgive the heart-wrenching pain from a broken relationship or loss of a loved one due to unnecessary violence. Sometimes we might say we forgive, but somehow the pain always seems to stay in the back of our hearts and our minds. So I ask the question, do we truly wholeheartedly forgive? Oh, Matthew 5 and 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate, decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you regardless of whether they deserve your forgiveness or not. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt? He is an innocent man hanging between two thieves on a cross and is being treated as a criminal himself. He has been beaten, spit on, tortured, blasphemed, and crucified. Soldiers were dividing his clothes and casting lots for pieces of his garments. Jesus is exhausted and weak, but somehow manages to speak his first words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, Jesus' thoughts were not on self-pity, revenge, or hatred. In his last hours, he intercedes and pleads for eternal forgiveness for his transgressors. And by doing this, we see the merciful heart of God and the infinite passion and love of the Son. He demonstrates a depth of forgiving love that passes our understanding. You see, forgiveness was the reason Jesus was on the cross. His forgiveness is infinite. It is without limit. His forgiveness is for every person he died for, and that includes you and it includes me. He has released us from the power 
power of sin and death. Forgiveness brings a kind of peace that helps you go on with life. And it enables us to experience true freedom in Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't be angry that they are doing this bad thing, for they are ignorant and don't know what they are doing is wrong. You see, the transgressors had heard all about Jesus, and they knew of his power, but out of envy, they refused to believe that he was the Messiah, and they were ignorant to the enormity of the crime they were committing. Oh, 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 if they only knew the ramifications of this enormous crime, they would have never driven nails through his hands. The hands that healed the sick opened blind eyes and opened deaf ears. The hands that hold our destiny, they would not have ever driven nails through his feet, his beautiful feet that traveled near and far preaching the gospel. His feet that a sinful woman washed with her tears, dried with her hair, kissed and rubbed with sweet perfume. They would not have ever cast lots for people's pieces of his clothes. Well, what do you mean, preacher? They were, they were gambling and rolling dice for his clothes. His clothes so sacred that a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years touched but only to him and she was made whole again. They would not have ever placed a crown of thorns on his head that caused his blood to flow. The blood that washes away our sins. The blood that redeems. The blood that makes us whole again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, uh, forgive them, Lord. Uh, they don't really know me, Lord. Uh, they don't know uh, that I am the son uh, of the living God. Uh, have mercy uh, upon them, give, Father, for they know uh, not what they do. God bless you. Deborah Carter, and I have the second word on the cross, and it reads, and Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Most Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessing to be standing in front of your people, to give them your word, but not my word. Thank you for allowing me to be the vessel to deliver what you have just me to do. And the title of the sermon is, 
the door is open. How often do we walk through doors? There are times that we open door for each other and out of courtesy, we turn the door for someone else. We do this unconsciously, which leads me to a question. Why is it so hard to enter the kingdom of God? We all want to get there, but we don't want to do the work. The second word of the cross comes from Stars at Calvary, where Jesus is standing beside two criminals, one on the left and one on the right, and all of them are being crucified. But a conversation conspires. If you allow me, criminal one says, and being the hypocrite, hey you over there, are you not the one they call Christ? And if you are, take yourself down, and while you're at it, take me with you. Without delay, the second criminal says to him, what is wrong with you? Are you not afraid of God? You and I have been sentenced for the condemnations of our deeds. Our deeds from the past has finally caught up with us. That man has done nothing, so why is he here? Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, please don't forget me. Because he was bold and brave, Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Does this conversation sound familiar to you? Especially when we question God for all of our trials. How many times have you addressed God the same way criminal one has? You know what I'm talking about. We have it more than we like to admit. We always challenge God and we say, come down here and take care of your business. But what makes criminal two noteworthy is the fact that he must have seen Jesus' capabilities. Was he somewhere listening to his sermons? Do you have a family member who believed in Jesus? How else would he know about the kingdom that Jesus is referring to? We would n never know, but one thing that we can say is that criminal two taught Jesus, criminal one how to enter into the kingdom. We do not know the reasons why these criminals are on the cross being condemned like Jesus, being punished by death. However, criminal two makes it very clear that his past is the reason why he's on the cross. And it is also possible that he might know criminal one because he compared their crimes to the crimes of Jesus. But at the same token, criminal two make it apparent that Jesus did nothing and should not be on the cross. Criminal two acknowledge his deeds, accept his punishment, and he petitioned to Jesus 
to remember him when he enters his kingdom. So, these are the pathway to enter paradise through the eyes of criminal number two. Compassion for our downfalls. During our lifetime, we would accomplish great things, exceed our expectations, but we must not overlook our misfortunes, the challenges that cause us to struggle and sometimes fall. Our downfalls are designed as our foundation, something to build upon. A solid foundation will provide the strength that is needed to move forward. For if the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? As stated before, criminal two acknowledged that he was not always a righteous person. In fact, if he was righteous, he would not be on that cross. He is paying the penalty caused from what he did that pulled him away from God. Compassion for our deeds. Criminal two knew he, he did not deserve salvation, but somehow he knew that if he went to Jesus, an innocent man, Jesus would accept him with no question. He noted and pointed out that both he and the other criminal were now praiseworthy citizens, but he also knew that if he confessed with his mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in his heart that Jesus would rise from the dead, he shall be saved. For every deed of salvation is interpreted as an act of divine love to those who do not deserve it. Remember, Jesus had a personal relationship with the Father, and because of that relationship, the criminals seek forgiveness through Jesus so that he might enter and experience paradise. Communion after detachment. Criminal two realized that he has not always, always walked in the presence of God. While he was reflecting on the cross, he announced that he was afraid of God and wanted to enter God's paradise. After the criminal confessed all of his sins, he turned to Jesus and asked him to remember me, and Jesus opened up the pathway and gave him his entranceway to paradise. How wonderful it is to know to enter paradise and to stand next to Jesus. We must have compassion on who we are, accept our responsibilities and our actions so that we can draw near to God so that he can open the door so that we can walk through. For in the Father's house are many rooms. It is not, if it's not so, Jesus would not have told us nor will he prepare a place for us. So the next time you are in the midst of asking why or how things are going not the way we want them to go, 
you must stop and ask yourself, forgive yourself, and bring all your concerns to Jesus. For he's the one holding the door open, waiting for us to walk through. And once you walk through, you will hear, well done, good and faithful steward. You have been faithful over all things. With your acknowledgement of who your sins are, repent of your deeds, and you will find me saying, welcome to paradise. which is, woman, behold your son. The scripture comes from the Gospel of John, 19, 25 to 27. I'll be reading from the NIV Bible, and the title of my sermon is, It Happened at the Cross. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to stand here in your presence continue to hide me behind you and guide me. Allow me to follow your footprints. The word that we have prepared together today, let it be clear and understanding. These things are asked in the mighty name of Jesus. Scripture reads, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he, here is your mother. From that time, the, disciples, the disciple took her into his home. Now, I'm gonna to speak today on how Jesus got to the cross. We've heard how Jesus was hung on the cross and what took place while he was there. The journey that took place before Jesus came to rest on Calvary, where he would draw his last breath, it was not a pleasant experience or journey for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He was treated horribly for no force of his own. Jesus falsely accused and would soon be nailed to a cross that he was forced to carry through the streets himself while being physically and mentally assaulted. People lined both sides of the road while standing elbow to elbow witnessing the crucifixion of Christ. He was beaten, whipped with a, he was beating, whipped with a whip that was designed to snatch flesh from his body with every single blow that he received. And if that was not enough, they stripped him of his garments, humiliated him, and placed crown 
or placed a crown of thorns on his head, causing blood to stream down over his face, making it hard for him to see. This journey to the cross was not easy for Jesus Christ, and Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus was a sinless man. Yet they relieved him of his garments, divided them, finished kneeling our Lord to the cross where he hung awaiting his death. Not a pretty picture. Some watch from near, some watch from far away. While well, some watched in pain, some watched in confusion, and yes, some even watched in joy. But none watched with more pain and more confusion or heartache than his mother, Mary, who birthed the Christ. There's something about a mother's love. There's something about a mother's love that never dies, never dies. It is said that the loss of a child may be the worst trauma a human being can ever experience. And that's never more evident than the scene of Mary standing numb at the cross, silent without movement. Possibly wondering and hoping if she would ever hear her son's voice again. Deborah Carr, a person, a chairperson of sociology, at the Boston University quoted, the death of a child is considered the single worst stressor a person can go through. The death of a child can be the worst stressor a person can go through. Therefore, Mary had to be devastated seeing her firstborn being crucified and tormented, leaving her to grieve and mourn I wonder what was going on in Mary's heart, in her mind. After all, she is the true mother of Jesus Christ. She, 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 she did make the choice to bring forth Jesus into this world after the conversation that she had with the angel in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. She came to the conclusion that she would carry and deliver and call the baby Jesus. Mary had to be in great pain as she witnessed her mango son hanging from the cross. There was no crowd of people watching at this time. There was like five people. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary's sister, which would have made that Jesus' aunt. There was Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and a disciple who Jesus loved. That's all that was standing there waiting to see his last breath. There's no way in this here scripture I read where Mary was communicating with Jesus. It just says she was standing there. But where were all the people that Jesus helped along throughout his journey while he was here on earth? Where were the people like the man that was paralyzed or paralyzed and couldn't walk? They lowered him through the roof so Jesus can touch him. He picked up his and walked. Where was the blind that he gave sight and where was the deaf that was now able to hear where was the lady that had the problem with blood they broke down whatever way possible to get to Jesus Christ and she was healed and how about the blind eyes that couldn't hear the deaf that couldn't the blind eyes that couldn't see 
and the deaf that were not able to hear until Jesus performed his miracle. Jesus was a healer, a deliverer, and a way maker. He also was a teacher of faith, hope, and compassion. See, the road to the cross that Jesus took, it was not a pleasant journey. None, by no way said possible. And no one on this earth knew the wonderful things that Jesus did while he traveled on this earth like his disciples who had deserted him now at the cross. Where were they? When Mary and Jesus needed them most. Nowhere to be found. But I got news, good news. I guess it didn't matter where they were. You see, everybody that was needed to be there, they were there to witness the transition and the transfer that happened at the cross. Mary was at the cross. Mary's sister was at the cross supporting Mary and watching her nephew. Mary, the wife of Colophus, was there to be in support. Jesus was there, nailed to the cross, and the Father is coming for the Son who was nailed to the cross. The disciple who Jesus loved was there to receive the direction from Christ while he was on the cross. So the five important people of this whole scene was there. We all know that we have friends, or we thought we had friends until hard times fell your way and they learned how to get away, far away from you. And Mary Magdalene, she was there. She was being loyal because Jesus had cast out the seven demons. We all remember that. It sounds like it was a family reunion to me. <laughs> And there's nothing greater than having a father who hates sins and a mother who will move mountains to get to her child. So now, everything is set. Now between the beating and the pain, while the blood dripped down from every hole in Jesus' weakened body, our Lord and Savior being held upright only because of the nails that has been driven into his hands and feet. Barely alive and crucified, not for his sins, but the sins of mankind and of the world. The blood of Jesus pouring out everywhere that had an opening from being whipped, nailed, pierced, and poked. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus streaming down his face from the crown of thorns that was smashed upon his head. But Jesus found the strength to open his eyes and see his mother, the one who carried him and introduced him into this world, standing there. Being a good mother, a mother standing there, Jesus stopped the process of his death. His body beaten, battered, mangled, and bloody acknowledges his mother. His mother that was there from the beginning and appears to be there at the end, showing that Mary was a true believer. When all had forsaken Jesus, Mary was the true mother who loved her son and was there to witness his final viewing and his final breath.
Jesus saw his mother and stopped the progression to let his mother know. Even though I am filling my father's mission and I will be moving on, I want to assure you that you will be all right. You will be all right. I am leaving you in good hands. The Bible says in Gospel John 19, 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother standing there and the disciple whom was standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And he looks to the disciple and says, here is your mother. This has been the word of God for the people of God. All praises be to God.
from Matthew 27 verse 46 and it reads and about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying Eli Eli lama samthani that is to say my God my God why hast thou forsaken me you may be seated here in the text, we find Jesus dying on the cross. Allow me to set the stage for you. Jesus had just been beaten nearly to death. The Bible uses the word scourge, which means to whip or punish severely. The soldiers stripped him and put on a scarlet robe and crowned of thorns on his head. They bowed down before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of Jews. They spat on him. They hit him on the head, which had the crown of thorns on it. And Jesus was enduring a lot. And he's hanging on the cross with two nails in his hands and one in his feet. He is dehydrated in excruciating pain, and there are crowds gathering around him at his feet, mocking him. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders all came to mock him. 
Two thieves were on each side of him. One converted right away on the cross, while the other chose to join in and mock him as well. All but one disciple was at the cross, and Jesus is probably thinking, I know why my disciples in fear have forsaken me. I understand why the robber would mock me. I understand why the crowds who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, five days ago would forsake me. And I even understand why the Jewish leaders would forsake me. But God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is at this point where I believe Christ took the sin of the world. His whole purpose was to die so that you and I might be saved. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus bore the sins of the world. He was dying as a substitute for the world. He presented the, he represented the guilt of our sins and he was suffering the punishment for those sins on our behalf. The first part of 1 Peter 2 and 24 says, who himself bore sins in his own body on the tree. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a crisis of faith. It is a declaration of fact. Well, preacher, what do you mean? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus was forsaken so we didn't have to be. Jesus entered the darkness so that we could walk in the light. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Let me break it down just a little bit more. God was punishing Jesus as if he had personally committed by every committed every wicked deed, committed by every wicked sinner. And in doing so, he could forgive and treat those redeemed once the redeemed ones as if he had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. So then, as the sin of the world was placed on Christ, the Father, who is holy and cannot look at sin, turned away as he became the recipient of the wrath of God. Now, anyone who goes to the Father asking for forgiveness of their sin won't have to worry about God forsaking them. Why? Because Jesus paid the ultimate price. So now what are you going to do when crisis comes knocking at your door? And it will come. What's going to happen if tragedy comes at your home? Are you going to cry out to God or will you ignore him? It has been said character is made in, is not made in crisis, it's revealed. It shows you what you really are. I don't know about you, but life for me 
has been no crystals there. Losing my mama was one of the most devastating and traumatic events of my life. I've never felt so lonely, but I can honestly say that I am not angry with God. There have been many times where I have cried out to him, God, you're gonna have to help me with this one because I don't understand. Father, I don't like that my mother is not here, but I miss her, my God, my God. Here Jesus exhibits the greatest examples of faith. He didn't get mad. He didn't stop talking to his father. He didn't say that he would never wanted to speak to God ever again. Oh no. Instead, Jesus showed us what we are to do in times of crisis and adversity. Now the emphasis is not on why has thou how why has thou forsaken me? The emphasis is him crying out, "My God, my God." So what are you going to do when life happens to you? Without stretched hands, you cry out with a loud voice, my God, my God. Another friend passed away, my God, my God. The doctor saw something on the test, my God, my God. Folk are acting crazy on the job, my God, my God. People are using and abusing you, but my God, my God. Whatever the situation is, Jesus taught us to run to the Father and cry out, my God, my God. Good afternoon. My name is Minister Michael DuBose. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for allowing me to come behind your sacred desk. Let the meditations of my heart and, and the words of my mouth be pleasing in thy sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I'm, uh, I came to give you a message about the fifth saying saying of Jesus at the cross on Calvary. And the title of my message is, I Thirst. Simply, I Thirst. The scripture reading comes from John 19, 28, and 29. In the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, verse 28 says, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon his sap and put it to his mouth. Jesus knew that his mother was going to be taken care of. This was a great thing, and he was satisfied with. And he loved all of his disciples, but his favorite disciples was there to cover for his mother. And all of the other prophecies about the crucifixion had been fulfilled. He remembered that there was one other scripture that needed to be fulfilled. And that was the scripture concerning him taking wine that was given him. David says in Psalms 69 and, 60, 69 and 21, rather, they gave me gall for meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Could you imagine being given vinegar to drink when you are dying of dehydration? How cruel our Savior was treated. John says the soldiers took a sponge and placed it on a hyssop branch and put it to Jesus' mouth to drink. No one knew Jesus' story better than the Savior himself. I'm sure he already knew the end before the beginning because he is the Alpha and the Omega. Everything was already written and he was now living this part of the story. He knew all prophecy and scripture. A matter of fact, he inspired those who wrote it. So at this point, he went back over every scripture and saw that there was one scripture that needed to be filled to be fulfilled at this moment. While studying this text, I wondered why John did not say Jesus said I'm thirsty instead of I thirst. Pastor uh, Dr. Darrell Hall of Georgia, sermon on the subject I thirst gave me a clue why he may have said this. When Jesus said I thirst and not I am thirsty because John wanted to keep Jesus' deity in check. He said many times that Jesus is the great I am. In Exodus 3 and 14 and 15, Moses was told by God to, to tell the people to call him I am whom I am. Jesus is God in the flesh. John gave us seven I am statements that Jesus said. John 6 says, I am the bread of life. John 8 says, I am the light of the world. John 10 says, I am the door. John 10 again says, I am the good shepherd. John 11 says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And John 7, John 15 rather, I am the vine, you are the branches. The I am statements show the divine nature of our savior. I believe John did not want to take from this nature. So he said, Jesus said, I thirst instead I am thirsty. You see, the I am part of Jesus, which is God, the Father, could not get thirsty. I also believe the thirst Jesus spoke of was threefold. It not, not only spoke of his physical thirst, he had to be physically thirsty. He had been hung there on the cross for six hours and he was tortured for hours before he was hung on the cross. So he was dehydrated and humiliated and slowly he was dying for us all. The second thing he was thirsty for was the closeness he had with God the Father. Never before had Jesus felt the separation from the Father like he experienced on the cross. Jesus yearned for that closeness he had with God. In Psalm 63, David say, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek my soul, my soul thirsts for you. In Psalm 42, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God, my soul thirsts of God, the living God. The third thing Jesus thirsts for was the souls that he were assigned to to save. Jesus thirsts for many souls he was going to save. He was always about doing his father's business. He was also showing the devil, he was also showing the devil that he was not finished yet. When he rose up and said, I thirst. When Jesus raised his head and said, I thirst, 
He was showing his enemies that their best efforts had not killed him yet, and he still had more to do while he was alive. He had to finish fulfilling the scriptures. No matter how bad his enemies wanted him dead, he was saying, it's not over until God says it's over. Jesus was thirsty for the spirit that he talked about many times in scripture. You see in John 4 and 14 where Jesus was at the well with the Samaritan woman, he told her about living water. He said, whosoever drinketh of the water I offer will never thirst again. He was talking about spiritual water. Jesus thirst for you and me. Quench his thirst and believe on him. Believe me, you will never thirst again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. some glory. Amen. Amen. He's an amazing man. He's awesome. He's great. He's wonderful. He's loving. He's caring. He's our Savior. Amen. Good afternoon on this Good Friday service. Giving honor to God who is the head of my life. I greet you with Jesus' joy. Let us pray. God, hide me behind the cross, so that I might deliver this word, God, to your people. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, for you are my rock, my strength, and my redeemer. Amen. From the New King James Version, John 19 and 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I have the sixth word. It is finished. My title is just one word, completion. I read the word over and over and over again and cannot tell you that I believe it was the Holy Spirit that I delivered the sixth word. I cannot imagine his mother standing in a crowd and possibly losing her son. Say, God, not my son. Have to sacrifice his life for the world. Being placed on an old rugged cross with a crown of thorns in his head, nailed to the cross. There were those that was close to him, his mother, Mary Magdalene, and one disciple. There were soldiers, according to scripture, that were standing in front of him. I thought, if crowds of people were there, that they would think about Jesus being crucified, what is going on? What is the finished work of Jesus? It is the beginning of new life in him for those who are lost in their sins and transgressions. 
What was the meaning of the sour wine, and why did he not drink the first wine? In my readings, it is said he refused the former sour wine because it contained gall. That was intended as a crude anesthetic for the holes the soldiers were about to drive through his wrist and feet. The fact that he drank the sour, the sour wine, the one without gall, may have had to do with hyssop, a plant from a mint family which was offered, rather than the sour wine itself. One, Christ tenderly provided for his mother at his death. Sometimes, when God moves one comfort from us, he raises up another one, and we didn't look for it. Three, Jesus fulfilled all types of prophecies from the Old Testament that were not fulfilled. His suffering, he gave up freely. According to Ephesians 2 and 1, many believe that he was the Son of God. It is finished meant Jesus had fulfilled everything on earth. Healing, deliverance, saving the lost and left out. The word finished is the same as pardon. You see, Jesus came to finish God's work of salvation. John 4 and 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus paid the price for you and I. In my mind, I thought it was a tragedy. When you think about it, though, on the other hand, he died that we might have a right to the tree of life. John 17 and 4 says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you have given me. So, before I finish and before I close, just some of my testimony. It's too long, and you might be here longer than we're supposed to be. Some of you know that I was diagnosed with cancer in February of 2019, a long time ago. I had just celebrated my 70th birthday on February the 18th with my son and his family, and on the 24th with my granddaughters and their mother. I thought, well, I had my physical, had my mammogram, all is well. On the 25th, the same day as my mom's death, my doctor calls me at work and said, she is referring me to a surgeon and an oncologist. I was diagnosed with breast cancer and traces in both my breasts. However, what I went through and I've survived will never compare what my Jesus went through. I can't begin to tell you everything. It, time will not allow. I will say I had chemo every week for four months. Several procedures, surgeries, pints of blood, potassium and calcium, and a double mastectomy in October. My God, my God, I leave you with this. My Jesus had blood streaming from his head. I fell down a flight of steps and had to go to the hospital and had six staples in the back of my head to stop the blood. I was threatened by one deacon 
and of course, bishop with a helmet. Whenever a procedure or a test was done, I would tell my son, this part is finished. My Jesus had nails in his hands. I had purple nails from chemo. My Jesus' feet were bound. I had neuropathy in my legs and feet. Still, he endured more than I did, and I couldn't walk at times. But you see, God allowed me to walk a little bit. I can run a little bit. I can talk a little bit. I can shout a little bit. I can let you know that God is able, he's worthy, and there's nothing like it. I have a village I need to tell you about. Bishop, first lady, elders, ministers, deacons, deaconess, my Shiloh family, friends, adopted, grands and godchildren, co-workers in my Shiloh family, and of course, the doctors and the nurses that took care of me. But I can tell you, of course, my son Derek would always encourage me and ask me how I was doing as with others. I didn't always tell the truth. I leave you with this. About 16 years ago, I had cervical cancer and I thought that was the end. But I tell you what, I'm here to tell you, I'm well, I'm healed, I'm delivered, and there's nobody like my Jesus. When you think about his goodness, when you think about his mercy, all you can do is say hallelujah, glory to God, glory to God, give glory to God, saints, give glory to God. He's worthy, he's awesome, and I tell you what, if I could run around this church, I just run around because for three long years, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But I knew I had a savior that loved me. I knew I had a savior that told me I could run. I knew I had a savior that told me I could shout. I knew I had a savior that would save you and I. So give glory to God, saints, because he is amazing. He's worthy, he's a healer, he's a deliverer, and we do magnify his holy and righteous name. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. hallelujah. God, we thank you, Glory. hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory. We'll overcome this by testimony, hallelujah. God is yet healing, hallelujah. God, we praise you. Glory, 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 glory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Even when we were sick, God, we searched for you. And we found there was nobody greater than you, Jesus. Nobody can heal like you can, Thank you, Jesus. Searched all over. Searched high and low, still couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater, nobody greater, nobody greater than you. Help me sit. Searched all over, hey, couldn't find nobody. Searched high, searched high. 
chapter 23, verse 46. And it is read, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The title of my sermon is going to be called, Jesus Understood His Assignment. Jesus understood his assignment. This phrase was the last Jesus Christ upon that rugged cross on a hill called the skull. It was a powerful moment and indicated the end of the, end of the law and the beginning of a new covenant called grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. The seventh and the last words of Jesus were words of contentment, words of faith, words of trust, words of confidence, words of love, words of dedication, words of victory. These were his words as he lit up on the cross. At Christ's death, the barrier was, was split into two. Now we can go to God directly. Oh, yes, we can go to die directly. We can approach him anytime now through Christ. God, what a wonderful person. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. His assignment was to build his father's kingdom. Keep in mind, everywhere that Jesus went, there was, there was haters. <laughs> you know who they were. <laughs> you know who them haters were. <laughs> but Jesus, he preached in the king, he preached the kingdom. He did it by teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel, building the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. And you know. <laughs> The haters always stood around. But you know what? That didn't stop him from his assignment. That didn't stop Jesus from his assignment. He was all about his father's business. And we should be about it too. He came to deliver the devil from his works. He came to deliver us from the wages of sin. He came to proclaim the father to the world and his good things. He came to give eternal life. He came to build, to bring the lightness to this dark world. He came to bring great joy. He came to demonstrate true humility. He came to preach the gospel. He came to reveal God's love for all sinners. He came to be the merciful and faithful high priest and to bring judgment to this world. This verse reveals the closeness and the nature of his father and the son and the, the power that the son had during his earthly ministries. And being found in a human, being found in appearance as a human man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, the old covenant was too insignificant us to take away our sins. So God needed a perfect sin. He needed the perfect sin. You remember, you remember Adam and Eve turned their back on God 
in the Garden of Eden. We have been corrupted by sin. We ignore what God wants because we rather want what we want. We are, our hearts are too set on accumulating power and wealth. And we don't take good care of what God gives us. We are too darkened by our sins to find our way back to God on our own. So therefore, God's justice required that there be a price to pay, a big price. But yet, despite our flaws, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as Jesus hung there, nailed to the cross with crowns of thorns on his head, blood bleeding down his face, ministering to two criminals on the side of him, looking into the atmosphere with forgiveness in his heart. Never once did this execution distract him from doing his father's will. Not once. Saints, I don't know about you, I would have been hooping and hollering and yelling, please, Lord, please, Lord, take this cup from me. But he didn't. He was saving lives and changing things forever. You know, the cross won us the victory that we could have never had won ourselves. It was the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. It was the blood. Jesus' purpose was being fulfilled right before our eyes. Everything Jesus did and said, he was fulfilling his Father's will. We know the story. <laughs> he was betrayed for a sack of coins. He was arrested. He was ridiculed. He was beaten, tortured. He was forced to carry his own cross to the top of Calvary. He was nailed to a cross, died a painful and humiliating death like a common criminal to fulfill his assignment. He paid the ultimate price for our sins. Jesus endured the pain and then offered his last breath, giving his life into his father's hands. He called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' assignment on earth was to save his people from sin through his death and resurrection. His purpose was to restore the sinners to their, their God so that they could have eternal life forever with him. But the beauty, the beauty of Christ's final death, final breath on earth is that we was given our first breath in heaven. When Christ breathed his last on earth, we breathed our first. This is the word of God for the people of God. Jesus knew his assignment. Thank you, Jesus. Searched all over, couldn't find nobody. Searched high and low, still couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater, nobody greater, nobody greater than you. 
let's pick it up. Your name, your, your name, name is, is above, above all names. Your hands. Thank you, Jesus. Mighty are the works of your hands. Glory, glory. Oh, oh hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, come on and put your hands together and bless God for these preachers of the gospel that allowed us to be reminded of Jesus' last words from the cross that they were able to share with us and we were able to sit in it to know that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. When there may be someone that's listening right now and you're watching and you're thinking about this Jesus, but I want to offer him to you. He is the one that loves you. He is the one that died for your sins and mine. He is the one that thought you were worth it and thought I was worth it. That he hung high and on the cross for your sins and mine. I extend the invitation to you. If you don't know Jesus, I want to offer him to you. This is the Jesus that loves you. This is the Jesus that want to hold you. This is the Jesus that will keep you that I'm offering you tonight. I'm offering you on this afternoon. We praise God for the word that was preached on this afternoon. We thank God for using the preachers of the gospel so mightily. And before we close on this afternoon, I would just want to take up our offering. Oh, it's giving time. This is another part of the worship that we're able to give unto the Lord. We want to thank you all that constantly and faithfully give. We praise God for your giving because of your faithful and consistent giving. It allows us to continue to do kingdom building. And as you saw on the screen, that is three ways that we have to give here. But we want to praise God for you and for your families that every seed that you sow, we trust and believe God that you shall reap the harvest. Oh, come on, let me just pray and bless God for our seed in our offering. Father, we just thank you. We honor you. We glorify you and magnify you. We thank you for this time that we have shared together. We thank you, Lord God, for every person that's sacrificing and to give. Oh God, we ask that you would bless them beyond measure. Father, we ask that you would open up the windows of heaven and pour our blessings upon them that they would not have room enough to receive. And we thank you in advance for all that you have done. But we praise you, oh God, for what you are about to do. In your son's name we do pray. Amen and amen. Oh, come on, saints of God, put your hands together and bless God. Oh, come on and bless his holy name. And those of you who are watching us, oh, come on and put some clapped hand in the comments and, and just let us know that you praising and thanking God. And we just want to, before we close out, we want to invite you to be right here, back with us on Sunday, on this Resurrection Sunday. You can come in person or join us online where we are going to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, we are looking forward to having a high time in the Lord. So we bless God for you and we thank God that you will be blessed on this Good Friday. You go in peace and may the peace of God continue to go with you. God bless you. <laughs>